0: We are turning once again to First Peter uh, we're gonna begin reading in chapter one verse twenty two and read through chapter two verse twelve. First Peter chapter one verses beginning in chapter one verses twenty two. Our text this evening is verse four to twelve, and that will be what we consider Verses 4 through 12 has, has quite a bit going on. I have to say it was one of the more difficult texts, I think, that we've come across thus far. And Peter is doing a lot. He's quoting a lot. So I'm excited to get to it. Um, and I think we'll, we'll be spending a little bit more time in the first section on the first point. I want to brace you for that, that the second and third point will be rather short compared to the first one. So first Peter chapter one, beginning in verses twenty-two. This is the word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths, so we ask now that you would shine forth your glory as it's made known to us in Christ, may it radiate in our hearts and in our minds, for this we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I open reading and going back to verse 22 because... I really want to connect us to the major themes and in the, in the narrative and the drama that Peter is drawing out. Just as we did this morning, it, it, you know, we're reading a, a long flow of thought where Peter began with addressing how the church is to operate before God. And then last week we saw how the church is to operate with one another. And I think this week what we're really seeing is how the church is to operate within the world. And so to put us within the, 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 the stream of thought as the audience, as the, the original audience would have heard this, I think we could, we could put it like this. What do, you, what do you say after last week's text? Okay, Peter, we, we, we get the picture of a community of believers that is a safe space, that love one another, where uh, all of these things that are commonplace in the world, malice, envy, strife, slander, those things are absent from our community. We, we love one another in this, with this sincere brotherly love. We get that picture, but what about our horizontal relationship and identity within the world? Do we do we just continue to withdraw or or do we withdraw and suffer and continue in this state of ostracism? Just kind of putting our hope in the in, in the heavenly and living hope, that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, waiting for our quote unquote pie in the sky, or do we resist the world? What do we do? How do we operate? I think perhaps that's what pilgrims would be asking as they heard people or heard Peter uh, exhort them everything that he said up to this point, but I, I think that maybe Peter has a different motive in mind as he makes this turn to address how the church is to operate within the world. He just quoted psalm thirty four where he said, Taste and see that the Lord is good and just before the psalmist says that, but just before David says that as he's Going about in the wilderness, fleeing, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. This is a time of pilgrimage or exile for David. Those who look upon him are radiant and their faces shall never be put to shame. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So I think Peter has this in the back of his mind and he's just said to them, taste and see that the Lord is good as a basis of their loving community with one another and he's moving to address their relationship to the world and he's, he's, you know, he's saying, well, wait a sec, what's going on with our experience? Has, has the Lord answered? What about the shame that these Christians in Asia Minor are experiencing? How can it be? The psalm proclaims deliverance. Look around, they could say to him, Peter, look around at at our living situation. This ain't fun. They're experiencing a wide degree of shame, a wide degree of ostracism and kind of dissonance and discord with the world. And so I, I believe Peter here is answering these objections and the confusion by reframing identity, this time in relation to the outside world and answering that objection. How should we think about what's going on around us and who we are within the world, and, and, and what are the implications of that new identity horizontally with the world for how we should live? How do we think about the church within the world? Well, Peter says in this text, you're connected to this rejected cornerstone, and as such are participants of an ancient heritage that you might glorify God, and through your godly conduct and godly life, win others to Christ. But the implication or the effect of this is actually weighty. And this is really, I think, the force of, of the way that this speaks to pilgrims that do experience ostracism and do, do feel out of touch with their world. That despite the suffering and dishonor you endure in culture, and despite what seems to be a silent God who's, who doesn't seem to be delivering on the promises of, of Psalm 34, the honor is actually yours and he has delivered in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. You are living stones with Jesus bound to an ancient heritage for, everlasting, or for evangelistic living. And we're going to look at this as we break down that that, uh, that key, key point into three points. Stones with Jesus in verse 4 to 8, ancient heritage in verse 9 to 10, and evangelistic living in verses 11 to 12. So first, stones with Jesus. Let's look at verses 4 to 8 here. But let your... Excuse me. That's the next chapter. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, There are three points that I want to discuss in this first major point that we're looking at, and the first of those, those three sub-points is that you have come to the living stone. Peter m- moves to make a number of fairly simple points about this living stone and our relationship with him. Jesus is the foundation and trendsetter of our faith uh, and our salvation and our experience of the Christian life. He was chosen, and he was precious, he was set apart, and he was holy, and yet he was rejected. In him, as we have come to him, we are chosen and precious, we are set apart and holy, and we are rejected by those who stumble against him and by those who have rejected him. So to call Jesus the cornerstone is to say that All that we are rests in all that Jesus is, and all that we experience rests in all that Jesus experienced. But I think that this is a very interesting way for Peter to go about and try and state this. Very simply, he's doing union with Christ theology, but notice the number of Old Old Testament quotations that he, he has here. There's a much easier way to go about establishing our uh, you know the basic concepts of our union with Christ in his ex- in both our identity and in our experience of the Christian life. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith as Paul says. He's prophesied of old, he's precious in God's sight, he was rejected by men as he said that he would be, and you're rejected by men as he said that you would be. It's a much simpler way to put things. Why go through all the trouble of citing all these Old Testament texts. While Peter is an artist, and as he thinks on how to address the church and the world and the circumstances that they're dealing with within the world, his heart and his mind are exploding like fireworks with Old Testament theology. Each of these passages that he quotes to them about this cornerstone that becomes a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense, is rich in its message to those who are alienated and suffering. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, and Psalm 118 all tell of the way that God delivers his people, particularly in the context of exile and submersion within uh, the pagan and amidst the pagan nations. So, if you're paying close attention, if you're attentive to what Peter is doing you pick up on this association that he's making with these Old Testament texts and their their context of exile. Refuge, as it were, is the harmony that's playing beneath these quotations. On a formal level, he's saying something about Christ as the Messiah who was rejected and about our union with him. But as he does so, he's speaking out of texts that are addressed to the plight of pilgrims and exiles who are themselves ostracized within their cultures and experiencing a wide degree of shame and rejection and suffering and, and, and this day of small things. And this shame and dishonor that they're experiencing is notable for Roman Christians because shame and honor were a big deal within the Roman cult and culture. Their honor was concerned with their positive social social standing and reputation and status status in the opinion of others insofar as they contributed to the orderly and harmonious life of society. Shame entailed sensitivity regarding a loss of honor and one's incapability of contributing to society. One's, One's Civic good and one's contribution to the city and to public harmony had everything to do with the honor that one experienced and the honor that one had in the Roman cult and culture and their citizenship and their rights. But Christians were viewed as threatening civic good and harmony and the harmony of the city and as such, they began to possess a wide degree of shame. So you'll you'll notice the interplay then of honor and shame in this passage and then the interplay of choice and rejection insofar as they're based upon belief or unbelief. The first point is all about the living stone. The second that we want to draw out here as we consider that living stone is the way that honor and shame, rejection and acceptance, are related to that cornerstone. To be a living stone, Peter says, is to accept Jesus, who was rejected and shamed by men, but chosen by God and honored by God. You yourself, therefore, as a living stone, being built up into the spiritual house as a kingdom of priests, are chosen and precious to God, but rejected and shamed by men on the basis of faith on the basis of belief. And on the other hand, to be an unbeliever is to reject and shame Jesus and his spiritual house of living stones, but therefore to be rejected by God and stumble. So the inference is, you may retain a favorable position in society and in the world, but in the grand scheme of things, The one who rejects Jesus stumbles, and he's the one who really doesn't have any honor. And this raises the question, how does this speak to people who are suffering malignment and ostracism within their culture? At the first level, you would say, well, well, Jesus was estranged, he was shamed, he was mocked, he was scorned, and you're united to him, so if he endured, so too can you. And he was exalted, so that's something that you have to look forward to. But Peter is actually rewriting their evaluation and their, the way that their honor system operates. This is another sense. Nothing really compares to the honor that we have to be associated with him and to be one who believes. Why? Well, what about the promise of Psalm 34 that you won't be put to shame? How is it possible that he's rewriting their their honor system if they, they do have shame in society? Well, what looks like shame here in the context of earthly pilgrimage isn't actually shame. Shame deals with Death and judgment insofar as one rejects or honors the living stone. That's the thing that Peter is suggesting that really matters to the people of God. Christ is seen as the the key to all human destiny and is the touchstone of all of our endeavors. Faith in Him is what leads to honor. Shame in the earthly pilgrimage then really isn't shame at all, most especially compared to to the honor that we have. It may, it may look like shame, but the honor is actually yours to know him. And to draw this out, he actually sets it against the backdrop of those who have rejected the cornerstone and as such have stumbled against him. What is stumbling and, and falling in this way? Well, in the Old Testament language, this stumbling means to be put to shame, to, to be re- receiving judgment, to be rejected by the Lord. The decree, of course, is not that they that they don't believe but or, or that they will stumble and fall, but that because they don't believe they would be put to shame and stumble and fall in this way because of their rejection, they will actually be brought greater shame so Peter's drawing a contrast and he 's showing how privileged we are to know him and to be part of that that, that building project of God, this temple of living stones. Their destiny, the unbeliever's destiny, shows you just how great and honored it is that you believe in him and are part of the temple that he's building. And it also draws out an important point in our culture, a relevant point in our culture. You can't have one foot in the door of this building project and one foot out. There's no such thing as spiritual but not religious. You are either part of the spiritual house that God is building as a kingdom of priests who offer acceptable service to our God, as verse 5 says, or you're not a part of this kingdom of priests who offer acceptable service to our God. There's no such thing as spiritual but not religious. And yet it's an extreme privilege to be a part of this building project. Remember, Peter, of all people, of all the apostles, was the most dead set on the rebuilding of the, and restoration of, the Solomon, of Solomon's glorious temple and of the earthly kingdom. He's flipping the paradigm here the honor is, is ours to be on the outs of society as the temple of our God, the spiritual house and the holy, holy priesthood being built into this spiritual temple. This new spiritual temple makes Solomon's actually pale in comparison. Now, since we have come to this living stone, Part of our corporate identity is now to be this spiritual house and holy priesthood who receives honor while offering acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ. That's the third aspect we want to consider about being, about Christ as our living stone. That we're united to Him to offer spiritual service. We could draw out the, 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 effect of this by putting it as a question. What could be more honorable for the people of God than, as verse 5 indicates, that we are able to offer acceptable sacrifices that God accepts through Jesus Christ? Christ relates us to God by making our sacrifices acceptable. Communion with God, in this sense, is completely restored. That's true glory and honor, actually, to, to, as it were, stand in the court of God and be pleasing in his sight. Caesar's court ain't got nothing. And by the way, as, as we offer these sacrifices to God, the interesting thing is, is that they're the very thing that sets Christians on the outside and on the outskirts uh, and in an unpopular perspective within the culture that we live. Our holy conduct, or the, the, the Christians in Asia Minor, their, their holy conduct was what was putting them in tension with Roman cult and culture. They weren't accepted there, but they were accepted by God and we ourselves are being built into that glorious temple of God, the one not made with human hands. So we are now this new dwelling of God by the Holy Spirit in the sight of true worship and acceptable sacrifices. That tells us something. To be connected to Christ, who was rejected and yet chosen and sanctified by God as the cornerstone of the spiritual house, means three things. First, the church is not primarily a social organization, but the new temple where believers' lives are offered as pleasing to God and for His glory. The church is spiritual and religious. Second, we're united as one people into a spiritual house made up of living stones. And so there's there's no house without the other stones that are present here. We're all a part of God's grand, grand building project, project and it is the house that he's building. And it's the house that will only be complete when the last of the stones are, 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 are placed in, are set in place. And third, this is a spiritual house. There is no promise of earthly transformation it's not a physical temple, but a spiritual one. He's not prescribing how to overcome the world. He's actually prescribing that they are to, as those whose whose highest, honor it is, whose highest honor attainable it is to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God, this side of glory, what he's prescribing that they are to do is to continue their honorable task of giving praise and giving glory to God and to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. That's the, the, the greatest thing that we get to do. And Peter goes on to bolster in the honor that believers have by contrasting the stumbling of believers with their sacred identity and ancient heritage. And he does so by quoting a number of Old Testament passages indicating that they're bound to this ancient, ancient heritage of Israel. And this is our second point. Would you look at verse 9 and 10 with me? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, a, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy all of the terms here were terms that God had used to describe the special relationship that he had with Israel or that he would come to have with the gentiles. Isaiah 43 for example, God speaks to his chosen people and he says that God formed for himself God formed them for himself that they may proclaim his praise. In that same chapter before he calls them his chosen people, he says God himself is Israel's only savior who will deliver them from exile. He will give water in the desert to his people. And In the grand scheme of Isaiah's prophecy, deliverance here is not just out of bondage and exile, but it foreshadowed Jesus who would deliver from bondage and from darkness to light. He also calls them his treasured possession, his royal priesthood and his holy nation. This is language right out of Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. And there it said, if they carefully listened to his covenant, they would be treasured. And the whole world is God's, but he said, you are my holy nation, you are my royal priesthood. And so now the kingdom of God is composed of believers who think of themselves as holy with respect to the world and set apart for purity and for the purposes of God. So to be a holy nation reframes our social context. We're we're not primarily Roman. We're primarily participants of the kingdom of God. Israel proper became a nation at Sinai when they cut that new covenant and the blood was spilled. In Christ, the new covenant is cut in Christ's blood. And he says of that bloody death, lifting up the cup, This is my covenant. This is the blood of my covenant that's poured out for you. So, as this holy nation, they're populated by royal priests through the cleansing of Christ's blood. Kings keep the law and uphold righteousness. Priests offer sacrifices acceptable to God. That's that's how they are to live. It's a sacred identity that, that incorporates with it a sacred way of living. And this sacred way of living was always intended to proclaim his excellencies, to make his name known. And for Gentiles, the most beautiful aspect of the titles that he ascribes in verse 9 to 10 is that he closes with a nod to Hosea. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So so look at how marvelous his grace is as he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, primarily Gentiles. You who were foreign are now connected to this ancient heritage of God's people, this covenant that he has cut, this special people, this treasured possession, this royal priesthood and holy nation. That's, that's an honor, an association, a citizenship that you can't compare with earthly glory and earthly honor as Roman citizens. He has, as it were, untethered us from earthly allegiance to be allegiant to himself and to his building project. That's impl- implicit here. If the building project is spiritual, it's not, the, it's not the project of the Roman Empire. So their deepest sense of allegiance, not that we're anti-earthly, is to the spiritual temple, not to the earthly temple. And because of the way that we live then as God's special kingdom of priests, as this holy nation of priests who have been plucked from the pagan nations, we actually do come to receive persecution, ostracism, malignment, unpopularity, dissonance in our culture. This is, this is what was happening to them. They didn't participate in the Roman cult cult. cult. They rejected polytheism. They rejected a lifestyle that rampantly indulged in the pleasures of the flesh. They rejected the worship of Caesar as they used to do. And the prosperity and the welfare of the state was believed to be associated with religious sources. So their exclusive identity of faith in Christ as a new nation, as a treasured possession as a kingdom of priests separate from the Roman cult, their rejection of Roman cultic practices and worship of Caesar and acceptance of polytheism was directly connected to the prosperity of the city, the harmony of the city. They were considered superstitious and bad citizens, citizens, And this brought them into conflict with the world, and that's why they were ostracized. They were bad citizens that were subject to accusations of treason. And because of this, it's it's interesting that Peter calls them a chosen race. That's a word that designates ethnic identity, and it bolsters the reality that our primary sense and source of identity and allegiance is not in relation to this world anymore. It's untethered. Peter wants to engender a powerful sense of solidarity with the ancient heritage of Israel so that those alienated in society know where they belong and where their honor is and where their value is. That's important because the pride and the honor that they had as citizens in the empire was important to them. This, this honor and shame culture was important to them. To give, them, to give this all up, to be in an unpopular position in society, to be ostracized, would have cost them dearly. There are cultures like this still in the world today. I think of somewhere like Saudi Arabia, where the honor and shame culture is, is heavily prominent. The way it would cost somebody to leave their family and betray their country... By becoming a Christian is a real consequence that they experience. There's a serious sense of shame one receives and honor one gives up, and actually, the shame that he brings his, his culture and his family for embracing Christ. It's a big decision. But Peter's message to a people living in this kind of society is that you've been, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our cornerstone who makes us into this special people and bestows on us an honor that is far greater than anything that we can perceive of in this world. Now all that ancient heritage actually implies a number of things. God's holy nation was to be a light to the world. They were called to evangelist, evangelistic living ...into holy conduct, and this is our third point. The very reason that God called Israel... ...was that they would be a light to the nations... ...through their holy conduct. So now, as Christians... ...live as pilgrims in the days of Noah... ...immersed in these wicked cultures... ...immersed in a pagan world that doesn't know God... ...the very thing that brings the living stones... ...into tension with the world their special identity as a kingdom of priests who offer up to God acceptable sacrifice, that very behavior is the very means through which we win others over to Christ. Even though it incurs a negative reaction, the same reason that they persecute and ostracize us is the same way that we win others over to Christ. And Peter urges them to this in verses 10 to 12. There are two aspects to his commands here. There's a negative and a positive. First, the negative is to abstain from evil passions which wage war against your soul. And the second is positive, to keep your conduct honorable. So that when the nations look at the Christian and his life, the one who belongs to the Lord, and they they come with accusations of treason there is no evidence to substantiate those claims. There is no evidence of rampant indulgence in the passions of the flesh, nor is there evidence of misconduct as neighbors or as fellow citizens. So I think this is a command that we have to take seriously in our conduct so that instead what they find is bewilderness, bewilderment. They look at a faithful life and service to Christ, and Peter hopes this will bring them to faith in the day of visitation. Notice what Peter doesn't command for pilgrims who are being built into a spiritual house. There is no program for conquering culture or taking over the world, changing the status quo, or eradicating injustice. What we find is a simple and earnest, heartfelt exhortation to his beloved, urging them to abstain from sin and to live positively in righteousness. This bolsters the reality that our, our allegiance isn't to political kingdoms of the earth, but to the, but to the kingdom of heaven. The program that the apostle lays out speaks out of their sacred identity to sacred living that is suited for this new world order. Here, the people of God are simultaneously in the world, awaiting the finishing touches, of the master builder. And at the same time, we, we, we want to avoid two errors. The first is resisting the world, and the second is developing a kind of private faith in order to avoid detection. Peter expects bold commitment to live in the world in correspondence with our identity before God. We are to live as holy priests in the kingdom of God who are offering up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, the very same kind of priestly sacrifices that win others to Christ. I think back to Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered. This was the cry of the pilgrim of David as he was wandering about the wilderness. Well, Peter teaches us today that coming to God is realized by coming to Jesus, the cornerstone of of our faith. In him, then, we have a sure confidence that no honor, uh, there is no higher honor than to be consecrated for service and for the advance of his kingdom. The honor that we experience through Jesus in God cannot be mitigated by the apparent shame and dishonor or ill repute and accusations that we endure in our culture. And the way that Peter goes about addressing the real distress and sense of alienation of living stones of the heavenly temple is to remind them that the honor that they have in knowing Jesus is the most amazing thing that you could possibly have and it is your honor to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to Jesus Christ even though it may cost you here It's a serious exhortation to live blamelessly this way and it's not easy. No. It's not easy. I I think we can all say we know that. But don't you want others to share the honor and the privilege that you have to know Jesus? And it's, for for the pilgrim here and now, it's, it's not just future glory. I think Peter wants to get away from that. That I'm just going to suffer right here and right now. It's going to stink real bad, and then one day it will be good. I'll have something to, to, to delight in. It's abundant honor now. Because you know Jesus, the living stone, the touchstone of all of reality. And part of me wonders, how, how does this text speak to the American church? I think if we're, if we're real with ourselves, we recognize that the, the level of ostracism, the level of persecution that the ancient church would, would come into and was coming into at this point is not the same kind of ostracism or unpopularity that we receive in America at this point in time. We, we don't suffer the same level of ostracism, and things haven't gotten that bad. We live in what is still a fairly moral and upright society, and we have rights and we have privileges that are protected under the Constitution of the United States of America. So that, that puts us in a little bit of a weird perspective here to, to benefit, I think, from the, from the value of this text to people who are, are really suffering shame and dishonor and, and the cost of what it means to know Jesus. But all the same. Nobody wants to be uncool. We, we, we want the white picket. We want the status. And so it still operates to orient our hearts and our minds to what really matters, to what's of true value, to what, what, where real honor is actually stored. It tells us what's of true value and honor and status, especially as we do come into contact with the world. We are, after all, here on a Sunday evening for a reason. Here's something that really matters. What's of true value? What do they see matters to us? What do they see is most important to us? Knowing and being connected to Jesus the cornerstone of our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the reality that you connect us to Jesus Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone that the whole church is aligned up against and founded upon. Lord, we ask that you would help us to value and see the value of knowing Jesus And that you would enable us to, by our godly walk, win others to Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.